0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, philosopher and scientist Peter Godfrey Smith says the ocean has a lot to teach us about the nature of existence.
1: And while certain creatures, like a shrimp, may seem simple, they are hardly that. The shrimp is a perfect animal because they're so complicated. They have about 18 different appendages, six feelers, six claws, a whole bunch of legs. These are long-lived monogamous and territorial animals. They mate for life and they hang out just with one individual. And later, awe and wonderment, a poet's view of
0: the natural world.
2: My idea of a good time is reading about the secret life of ants or, you know, the hunt for the giant squid, learning the different names and the musicality of different shells across the Florida seashores. And ah, there's always something to marvel over.
0: Connecting to nature through poetry, shrimp, cuttlefish, and the mysterious octopus, all ahead on Life Examined. When it comes to understanding the mind, one philosopher and diver suggests we need to dip our heads below the surface of the sea because marine life may hold some illuminating answers. Shrimp, coral, cuttlefish exhibit amazing levels of consciousness. The octopus, with its many tentacles and arms, functions as a creature with multiple selves. So what can we learn from the way animals experience the world? Could sea creatures unlock the origins of the mind? In his book Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind, Author and professor in the School of History and the Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney, Peter Godfrey Smith, explores the complex levels of consciousness and self amongst some of his favorite undersea creatures. Well, Peter Godfrey Smith, welcome to Life Examined. Very
1: glad to be with you. Do you remember the first time you fell in love with the ocean? The very first time, that's a hard question to answer. I I grew up in Sydney. Uh, which which is on the ocean. And I, I was always a little bit of a, a, a sort of sea sort of person. And I, I'd done a bit of scuba diving in the past, but began to spend more time in the water, especially in a marine reserve called Cabbage Tree Bay. And I came across Australian giant cuttlefish, uh, just the most extraordinary animal. I mean, these are, these are big animals, they're about three feet long, and they can change the colour and pattern of their skin in a fraction of a second, producing just about any colour. And in addition, some of them, individually, have a kind of apparent interest in people, in divers, Mm. as well as us being interested in them. So I found myself in the water with an animal that was visually spectacular, obviously very complicated, quite interested in me, And then when I thought about it a bit, I realized that this was a mollusk. You know, this is, it's a relative of octopuses, the cuttlefish. And so consequently, its relatives include things like oysters and clams. And that raised so many questions for me. And that, those couple of moments, which were a kind of combination of just being in the water with something amazing, and then thinking about the theoretical or biological angle or consequences Of the encounter. That was really, that was a particularly important event for me.
0: Yeah, and and you're a philosopher, and and I wonder what kind of questions were coming to your mind when you thought about the nature of existence,
1: who we are, how our brains came to being. What what was happening for you then? Well, the first question was, is it an illusion to think that this animal is experiencing my presence? in a way that has some analogy to the way that I was experiencing his presence. Right. Uh, is there a kind of similarity in the encounter on each side, or is that just a consequence of the way we anthropomorphize and see certain kinds of interpretations as natural when we're confronted with with, with animate sorts of things? So that then led me to think, I've just got to start learning a bit more about these animals and also start thinking about what kind of evolutionary history the things I was interested in might have, the evolution of, of conscious experience itself, the evolution of engagement with other beings as agents, all of those sorts of things. So it, these moments in the sea really were a time when a sort of flood of philosophical questions uh, suddenly became relevant. Tell me how that took
0: you to your latest book, Metazoa, because you are going uh, back down through the tree of existence under the ocean and looking at all these different forms of
1: life. So take us there. Sure. So those, those experiences in the sea with giant cuttlefish and then also with octopuses, their relatives, led me to write a book called Other Minds which is very much organized around a particular feature of the tree of life, the tree of ancestor-descendant relationships, or the genealogical tree that links all living things on Earth. So if if you go back far enough in time, you and any other living thing have a common ancestor, or many common ancestors, but in particular you have a, a most recent common ancestor, the last being that was a great-great-great-great-great-grandmother or grandfather of both you and, as it might be, a dog or a cat or Mm. an octopus or an ant or an oak tree. And the book Other Minds was organized around a fork in the evolutionary tree that leads on one side to us and on the other side to octopuses. Mm. And the idea that you have uh, the convergent or parallel evolution, it seems, of the ability to experience the world on these two branches. Now, having, having done that one, it was natural then to look more broadly and think about uh, a lot more animals. So the word metazoa, which is the title of the new book, that word is an old fashioned word for the animal kingdom. It's a sort of late 19th century word for the animals, all the animals. And the organizing principle of the book is to make a kind of journey mostly in the water under the sea, encountering a lot of different animals around now and thinking about what their abilities show about the history of animal life. And then also asking about how that history might help us deal with the mind-body problem, the the question of how minds can exist at all mm. in a physical world. Yeah.
0: Take us on a little bit of that tour with you as we go under the ocean, and you explore some of these extraordinary creatures. Um, jump into one of
1: them for us and tell us about it. Sure. Um, the, the The first one we we encounter is a glass sponge, which is an amazing animal. Uh, but I won't focus on that one. The next one we encounter in the third chapter of the book is a soft coral. Mm. There's a site a few hours north of Sydney where I've done a lot of diving recently called Nelson Bay, which has a coral garden or a couple of different coral gardens where these are not the sort of hard, familiar corals that you associate with the Barrier Reef or or somewhere like that. They're soft corals. They have have soft flower-like bodies. And a beautiful thing about them is that if you just pause, if you go slowly and watch them you can see them exhibit tiny, radially organized behaviors in real time. There's a kind of reaching or grasping behavior that they do and a kind of a grasp and release. And sometimes you'll see thousands of them do this at once, not wholly synchronized, but on a similar scale. Other times you might see a whole bunch of them very still and one of these sort of tiny hands will exhibit as a slow grasping and releasing motion. Now, they're looking for, they're grasping for food. This is a, a feeding behavior. There's food going past in the water. And the thing that makes them important in the story of the book is the fact that, so corals have nervous systems. They're animals with nervous systems. So each of these flower-like forms contains a nervous system. And nervous systems evolved essentially to guide action, to make it possible for animals to act. Mm. Agency or action mm. is, in some ways, the, the specialty in uh, animal evolution. And a natural question to ask is, well, what did the first actions look like? Who were the first animals that could move their bodies in a coordinated way? Now, these corals are not our ancestors. They're our cousins. They're present-day organisms. So you can't just look at them and read off what our ancestors were like, but there's various lines of evidence and clues that suggest that these might be echoes uh, of the very first forms of animal action—a kind of radial, a radially organised, perhaps even flower-like form—and a contraction as a, a kind of very early animal action. So that's that's one of the first ones that we encounter in the book. Mm,
0: it's a beautiful description and, and wondrous in the way you describe this this creature grasping out all of these different parts of it. And and every time I've been around something like coral, I, you think is this operating as just one as one being or thousands of beings? I mean, can you say more about what, what is happening
1: in, within this creature? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, when you look at a coral, the, the, visible, the visible thing you're looking at is, is a colony of, of many thousands mm. of tiny animals, each of which have their own nervous system. Now, something I don't really tackle much in the book, uh, but we'll have to at some point, is the question of um what relationship there is between the individual level uh abilities of animals like this and what you see at the level of a collective. Right. So a a bee colony would be a more, in some ways, a better example to think about in this connection because the individual bee in a bee colony is much more complicated and can do many more behaviours than an individual coral. But the whole bee hive, if it's a honeybee hive or colony, itself has the ability to process information and, in a sense, to act as a whole. Now, in the book, Metazoa, i had enough on my plate trying to work out how to think about the individual bees, individual corals, individual octopuses, individual fish, all the animals that we encounter on the tour. But I often felt that I was deferring the question of what to make of groups and colonies and, and collectives of that kind.
0: Mm. Really fascinating. Well, I'm glad we've given you your next book assignment today. And, right. Uh, <laughs> but t- take us now to a- another another bean under the sea
1: that really captured your attention. The next chapter in the book is about crustaceans, basically, mm, yeah. and there's a particular individual, uh, not just species, but a particular individual animal. Uh, that figures in that book, and that's a banded shrimp, or what's sometimes called a barber pole shrimp, so with the red and w- so that the red and white stripes of a barber pole gives you an indication of how its body is marked. I came across a pair of these in the water, uh, actually near the the coral garden I was mentioning, mm-hmm. and was very charmed by their behaviours. So. Crustaceans are arthropods. They're in the big group that includes also insects and things like that. So they have they have an outside skeleton and lots of lots of appendages and jointed legs and things like that. And when you look at the transition between a coral like animal and a crustacean like animal like the shrimp, there's a huge difference there. One is a shrimp has the sort of left right bilateral organization that we have so this, we're now on the road that includes bilaterally organized animals. And all of the very complicated behaving animals on Earth have that organization. Secondly, because of those uh, appendages and the hard skeleton on the outside, it has tremendous scope for action. Uh, there's a lot of things it can do. It can mm. move quickly. It can grasp and feel and explore And the interaction between sensing and action takes a new shape in an animal that has that simultaneous combination of lots it can do and lots it can sense. It can can sense richly and it can behave richly. And as a consequence of that, at this stage in a story, we encounter a certain kind of loop between sensing and acting, where what you do is a consequence of what you sense. But what you will sense at the next step is also a consequence of what you just did. Right. And this creates both problems and opportunities. You know, the shrimp is a perfect animal to to use for thinking about this because they're so complicated. They have about 18 different appendages, six feelers, six claws, a whole bunch of legs, various other things. So I spend quite a bit of time hanging out with this pair, and then some months later, I went back to the same spot, and I think I found perhaps a member of that pair still living there. It was quite sad because these are long-lived, monogamous and territorial animals. They mate for life and they hang out just with one individual in a small space. So when I went back and and found one, uh, it was fairly likely, or at least you know, highly possible that this this was one of the pair that had lost its mate. Hmm. And I, you know, I. With an animal like this, you don't have the same kind of engagement or sense of contact that can occur with an animal like an octopus or an animal like a mammal. But I found myself visiting this shrimp quite often, uh, more often than I think uh, I would have previously wanted to admit. Because <laughs> sure. um, it was a sort of three-hour drive up the coast to, to visit a shrimp. Eventually, it was gone. Of course, I went. I went, and it, it 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 was no longer there. And I felt I'd learned quite a lot about the next stage in the story, the 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 complex, active, fast-moving, sense and actions entangled way of being an animal from hanging out with this shrimp. As
0: we have this conversation, I wonder too. I mean, is there this problem of projecting our human way of thinking? our human way of understanding self onto these creatures?
1: There is a problem there. And this is a good point to encounter the octopus. One of the reasons octopuses are an important case in the story is the fact that there's a kind of centeredness of self that we humans and probably lots of other mammals and vertebrates have as a consequence of how our nervous systems are set up and our bodily organization, there's a kind of centeredness of self that might be absent or very different in some animals with different organizations. And the octopus is the kind of outstanding case because most of its nervous system is not concentrated in the head between the eyes, uh, but spread through the body, especially in the upper part of the arms. There's There's a gigantic network there of control devices and sensors in the arms, uh, which is larger than the the central brain. So when we look at an octopus and try to imagine what its experience is like, one of the big questions is how we should tackle these differences in organization that might imply differences in the kind of selfhood that's present there. Mm. And this is another this is another question which I, I you know, I'd love to give a definitive answer to how to handle this, but I think it, it has some very puzzling features. Can you spend some time just talking about the wonder that is the octopus?
0: You said a little bit there, but but uh, you, you do such a beautiful job in the book talking about why this
1: creature is is so amazing. Can you say more about it? Sure. They, the, one of the things about an octopus that is wonderful, I think, is the the particular kind of sensory capacities it has in the sensory world it must inhabit. So if you're an octopus, all of those arms, which are in some ways a little bit more like tongues or lips, uh, they have all sorts of sensors on them such that they're tasting everything that's being touched. There's some light sensitivity in the skin itself as well as light sensitivity in the eyes. There's um, the fact that the arms probably engage in some degree of self-directed or self-chosen chosen motions themselves. So there you are, a sensitive being with light washing in a way that affects uh, all of your body. And as your arms move around in a way that is probably often not entirely directed by you, the central being, they are continually touching things and tasting everything that they touch. So those looping relationships between what you do and what you sense have a particularly intricate and interesting form in the octopus because the decisions made by the arms are probably, as I say, partly at least autonomous, arm by arm. Now, I think octopuses can pull themselves together when they need to, you can often see an octopus do a very coherent whole body organized behavior, but at other times what you're seeing is a kind of a collect a collection of exploratory subparts with a central being in the middle with kind of uncertain and perhaps shifting relationships to what all these to what these individual arms are up to.
0: You said a little bit earlier in the interview that when you go back down the tree of existence, there's a fork in the road, and the octopus goes one way,
1: and the human goes another way. After that description, tell us what you mean by that. Well, it's it's partly just a description of of, of what the shape is like. Um, there's a fork in the road, and it, right, it's not that we or an octopus are there at or near the fork. Mm. What's at the fork is a little, probably a little flattened worm of some sort quite simple. And evolution is largely a matter of the splitting of populations into two and then their subsequent independent evolution. You have a collection of beings, little worms as it might be, they split for some reason into two subpopulations and then evolutionary changes take them down their own separate paths such that each might then split again and again many of them will many of the branches will go extinct but a few of them perhaps won't and before you know it what began as a single localized splitting event very long time ago perhaps 600 million years ago has led on one side to you and a cat and a bird and all the vertebrate animals that we think of uh, habitually as the complicated uh, smart brainy ones and on the other side of the split to a huge number of invertebrate animals, which include the octopus as a kind of exemplar of complexity on that side. But also on that same side, uh, there's um, animals like that banded shrimp and insects and various kinds of worms. By the way, when I talk about that split, it's not that everything on our side is a vertebrate animal. Surprisingly, perhaps starfish are close to us. Uh, Starfish Despite their apparently radial appearance, you know, you might think they'll be they'll be closer to that coral that we were talking about. They're quite close to us, and they they redis- they discovered that star shape independently um, after quite a bit of time spent on a track that also was the track that would eventually lead to animals like us. Mm. So it's not that the tree is a kind of simple orderly thing where everyone who's linked in time by relatively close ancestry on the tree looks similar to everybody else around there. You know, a a starfish looks more different to us than perhaps a shrimp, one might think, but a starfish is closer to us on the tree than a shrimp is. Mm. There's
0: maybe one takeaway, and, and maybe this is too simplistic, that what you're describing is a beautiful, complicated world by vertebrates and invertebrates and it brings a level of complexity to these lives that maybe we didn't quite appreciate before and with that a different understanding of these these fellow creatures.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's an appropriate way of describing the situation. I think there's more complexity in the lives of animals around us than we had supposed. Now, in some ways we're used to hearing this about birds and other mammals and perhaps fish as well. These are all vertebrates. And the octopus has been getting some, uh, some favourable publicity on this front as well. But there's a lot more even than that. Animal life in general, including in sort of tiny, inconspicuous animals, has more richness than I think we had supposed. The more we learn about who has mood-like states, emotion-like states, um the kinds of capacities that they can um, that they can produce in action. there's a lot more complexity around us. there's more experience around us. I think more animals have experience than we had supposed. The world is in a sense a fuller place with respect to the presence of experience, conscious experience. That is a kind of, it's not a gestalt switch, I think. I think it's a sort of gradual realization that it's appropriate for us to embrace. Do you
0: find yourself almost in spiritual wonder of the things that you study, or or, or asking yourself some of those larger existential questions?
1: I'm not a religious person, and I, so I'm, I'm an atheist, and I think that the word spiritual is not one that I would readily use of my own experience either. But there's not there's not an ideal word for what I would want to say. Basically, I think the word spiritual always sort of brings with it connotations of a kind of otherworldliness or mm. soul-like extra existence. Right. Uh, a sort of at least quasi-religious way of looking at the situation. And... All of those sorts of ideas I I do see as wrong turns. I I think that's just not the way to... It's it's tempting, but not, not the way to think about things. I think that there's a kind of grandeur in existence and a kind of unity that is closely tied to that grandeur that I would embrace and find myself thinking about quite a lot. So my experience—I mean, one of one of the parts of the book we haven't talked about much—is is plants, and I don't think that plants have experiences. Most likely, I think not even glimmers. So I'm a little—I'm a, I'm a bit of a skeptic about the the idea that plants are conscious or anything like that. But writing the book has led to me just feeling quite differently in gardens uh, than I had before. Writing both these books has certainly led to me having a very different sense of what it's like being underwater, surrounded by these all these extraordinary, uh, subtle, tiny behaviours, but gardens as well. And the third book that will exist in the series, so there'll be a third one after Metazoa, uh, will be about the earth and our experience and our role on the earth. It'll try to tackle these questions a bit more explicitly, Questions that I'm obviously not yet very good at saying something sort of definite about. Mm. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think of it spiritually. I think that there is, however, a kind of change in our orientation to nature which is motivated by uh, these sorts of findings. Um, and there are kind of aesthetic words that come to mind readily, sort of grandeur and, and awe at seeing and appreciating what's around us. But then there's probably more to say, and I haven't yet worked out how to say it.
0: Peter Godfrey Smith is the author of Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind. Thank you for this conversation today. We appreciate the time.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Still to come, have you ever wished you were a vampire squid? Coming up, poet Amy Nozuku-Matatil describes her favorite cephalopod and other marvels of the natural world. She says writing about these creatures has given her a little more insight into who she is. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examines after this short break. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car. Designed to be recycled... This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time,
1: space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars.
2: The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on
1: cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars.
0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from philosopher Peter Godfrey Smith at the University of Sydney talk about the profound beauty and complexity of certain underwater creatures like the octopus. And it's from creatures like these that poet Amy Nizuku Matatil gets her inspiration. Her latest book called World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks and Other Astonishments is a poetic meditation on the natural world. She says that by studying and writing about these different forms of life, we find metaphors and language to help us understand our own lives. Amy Nizuku matatil is a professor at the University of Mississippi at Oxford, and she joins us now. Welcome.
2: I'm so happy to be here with you all. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Do you remember when you started to fall in love with the natural world around you?
2: I don't remember ever not being it that that way and that's because you know honestly i i take that all back to my parents who were immigrants who are immigrants um from india and the philippines and they worked their behinds off um as a doctor and a respiratory therapist but they always always had time for us to be outside in their garden um, or taking us to to parks or uh, forests or mountain hikes on the weekends And they were just the kind of the greatest model for being in awe of the outdoors, but also respecting it and also being able to be humble enough to say, I don't know about this. I would like to learn more.
0: I know from some other interviews you've given, you, you've talked about how much you love reading field guides and how you often spend so much more time reading uh, things about the natural world maybe than reading fiction or poetry. Do, do you remember kind of losing yourself in some of those field guides and getting really, you know, geeking out into the into the botany and the science of everything?
2: The The easy answer is I'm still kind of just I'm a nerd, and mm. I, I love that stuff, and I'm unapologetic about it. I remember very much as a as a younger um, girl, my parents would take me to the library and leave us in the kids section, uh, and I would kind of always make my way over to the science and nature section. Um, I just ha- was so bored with like this girl goes to the store, this girl tries on a dress, and this girl, you know, that had that did nothing for me, and. Mm. Nothing against kids who love that kind of books, but I was just so interested in how volcanoes formed and lizards eating other lizards. And to me, there was drama in the
0: outdoors.
2: Mm. And. Um, you know, I didn't know who Dr. Seuss was. I thought that was one of my mom's co-workers who happened to be famous. I just remember I absolutely... And I'm still that person today at at 46. Uh, I realize this is so nerdy, but I, my idea of a good time is reading about the secret life of ants or, you know, the hunt for the giant squid, um, learning the different names and the musicality of different shells across the Florida seashores. And uh, I just... um there's always something to marvel over. And there's such a poetry and chance for metaphor making just by reading about the outdoors and just by being in the outdoors too. So it's been kind of my whole life's work to, to be able to say, oh, uh, instead of just, there's a, I love that tree over there, the way it shimmers. Oh no, that's a cottonwood tree, you know, or, mm. oh, look at that catalpa, not just, I see a lot of green outside, you know, that kind of things. So to me, that just that's such an endless source of delight, and that's the same way how it's been since I was seven or eight
0: yeah how does how does poetry come from studying field guides and learning the names of shells and trees
2: on on the on a very basic level, there's such a musicality of of names, you know, um, I'm thinking of one of my favorite invertebrates, Valella valella. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's the scientific name. It's just how do you not smile when you say that word on your tongue, Valella valella? The music that comes from just knowing names of animals, and also just knowing a little bit of the science of why leaves change color, not just oh it happens to be winter, you know that kind of thing, um, or how does a rainbow get formed in the sky? I think it serves as a diving board for making those connections to kind of more difficult questions to answer about death or about coming of age or about facing your own mortality or the joys of welcoming a new birth into, into your family. Things that you maybe don't have the words for. Mm, you might be able right. to make metaphors Using language and the vocabulary and the music of animals and plant names, you know, like instead of saying my heart is beating fast, you know, um, my heart, uh, you know, this is terrible. I haven't sure. had my coffee yet, but you know, my heart um, is is galloping like a Clydesdale in my chest, you know, that mm. that kind of thing. So, but to me, they go hand in hand, and I always say Mother Nature is the best poet of all, you know. I, I'm just always taking notes from her, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. In a way, for me, uh, nature gives me a vocabulary for the unnameable, um, for the uh, things that I, I maybe wouldn't have words naturally for. I find that vocabulary in nature.
0: I love what you said about how how things in nature and the language of nature teach us teach us bigger things or ask us bigger questions about who we are, our mortality, what it is to see another life come into the world. I I don't know, can can you say more about that? I think that's beautiful.
2: Yeah, sure, you know, um, so I teach nature writing and I teach environmental literature um, here at the University of Mississippi in addition to poetry classes, but one of my favorite things, just seeing the evolution of students come across, you know, just from one semester's worth of doing kind of deep studies of the outdoors just around them, you know? And I say that you don't need to be having these hour long walks in the forest um, to get these kind of epiphanies. It could be simply um, looking out your window. So I wanna make sure that there's this is not a classist thing to be able to do, that this mm-hmm, is sure. something you don't need money, you can take a walk that's free, you know, that kind of thing. and You know, hopefully be wearing a mask nowadays, yeah. but you would still be taking a walk. I guess I would just say, going back to your question, many of my students had not, at least in the last decade, taken the time to witness, uh, this is just an example from class, I gave it as a class assignment to have them actually watch either, in their choice, um, either a sunrise or a sunset with no cell phones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they had to just kind of be quiet and watch the sunset or the sunrise, and then just kind of journal about it for about a half an hour afterwards, what they saw, what they smelled, what they heard. And I tell you, it was some of the most profound and moving insights that they gave just from this contemplation. And it was just like a 30-minute contemplation. But so many of them had said they had been too busy to ever even notice, the, or if they saw the sunset, they'd notice it for two seconds and then wanna take a picture or go on their way, you know, that kind of thing. And giving them a chance to kind of reflect and take in one of the most spectacular, beautiful, um, natural occurring events help them remember either, I don't know, parts of their childhood for some of them, some of them, their impending mortality, questions about the future, what the future holds. And it was all uh, dotted over with their observations too. Like, oh, I'm hearing a skittering and I realize it's a brown thrasher at my feet. I never Mm. realized that was a bird who who kind of just likes hanging out in the leaf litter, you know, that kind of thing. I wouldn't have noticed that had I... Not been outside and without a cell phone, they made little sketches to look it up because I I made them promise, pinky promises, they would not look up things on their cell phone. They just had to take it in and in that careful studying, really really looking, it was reminded. I think they were all reminded of that's what they used to do as kids. They would stare at ladybugs for a half an hour, or you know let let a let a ladybug crawl up their sh- you know shoulder and. Sh- and not feel like they need to get it on Instagram, or mm. in that close looking they get to be reminded of a place where possibility and love is is actually closer to them than the news might lead them believe right now mm. you know what I mean so. I know this sounds like kind of like a Pollyanna-ish way of looking at it, but I've seen it with my own eyes. The most jaded Mississippi students who are like, ah, I'm taking this class for credit. I don't really, you know, I don't really like the outdoors. They become so attentive to what's around them. And I've seen a tenderness spring forth from that, a tenderness towards their fellow humans. And I firmly believe that there's a connection there. When you can name, oh, that's a monarch butterfly, and watch how this turns chartreuse green, or watch how the, the the caterpillars turn chartreuse green into a chrysalis, and then from that springs forth a monarch butterfly. When you're given names and you actually take the time to to watch that, I feel like you your heart becomes a little bit more tender. You have less of a appetite for a kind of destruction, an mm. appetite for um, Annie Dillard calls it. I think. Yes, yeah, she says, you become less hungry for violence. Yeah. I think so and I've I've just seen it with my own two eyes. And uh, I'm not saying, you know, hey, be outside. There won't be any wars or, or anything like that. But I just feel like we can be ten a little bit more tender and understanding towards each other. And I see we need it so much now. Um, I mean, all you need to do is turn on the news.
0: Yeah. It's so funny. As you were talking, all I kept thinking was... Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie uh, Dillard, one of yeah. one of my favorite books of all time. And if if, yeah. if any of our listeners don't know about it, Annie Dillard is one of the great uh, naturalist yeah. writers who talked about something that you're talking about, which is just the raw simplicity of noticing a place, mm-hmm. a set of things, a time, and. And I, I, I love this question of turning to almost a childlike state when the child just says, look, look, mm-hmm. and, and we don't know exactly the depth of what they're seeing because we already come with our preconceived notions of what it is. But that's also, I think, what you're talking about here.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You never have to teach a child how to wonder. Mm. You know, what just the verb to wonder means... Just to have curiosity, um, and one of the the roots of the word wonder means to smile. So, what are you curious about that makes you smile and be almost yeah, like kind of childlike in that wonderment of, of wanting to know more, you know, wanting to also share it with other people, and I think that that I think that wonder is contagious. It's a humbling, you know, you have to admit that you're not Lord of the planet, you know, that you don't know everything about even, even if you've lived in one town all your life, maybe just maybe you might not know every bird or living thing in that, in that town. And what are you going to do about it? How can you go look it up? How can you learn a little bit more about something other than yourself? How do you share it with somebody? Once you practice that, once you have that the beauty is you can start anytime. You can start today. Mm-hmm. And if it becomes a practice. And I, I firmly believe that once you have wonder in your life, once you make wonder a practice, you feel less alone. And oh my gosh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I can't think of a more needed life skill than to help yourself feel not alone by just looking outward, not mm-hmm. inward, but looking outward to see what makes you smile what makes you curious about this planet hmm. um,
0: it's so funny you know we, we've spoken to a lot of interesting people on this show and their and their op- <laughs> some of their advice might actually be to look inward and to go into a mm-hmm. meditation but i i really like what you're saying which is look outward and maybe what does it show us about what's inside of us as well
2: Yes, when you look outward, you actually again can find a vocabulary for maybe what's going on inside of you, you know. And I, uh, during April, that's National Poetry Month, I often go into elementary schools and and I get to be a, a guest visiting poet, you know, to many elementary schools. And you almost don't have to teach kids how to make metaphor; they just do it themselves. One example I can give that I've never been able to forget is there was a I want to say it was a maybe a third grader who I didn't know this at the time. The teacher had told me um, in private afterwards um, but he had lost his mother maybe two, three months before my visit and oh, I'm just going to get myself um, weepy here mm-hmm. thinking of it. We're yeah. just talking, you know, I had an exercise where we were talking about cloud shapes things right. like that. I had them write about different cloud shapes and his line was, you know, so um, I had them make metaphors for feelings so for, for happiness, use a, a cloud shape that explains happiness for sadness use a cloud shape that explains sadness you know that that kind of thing and for sadness he said simply uh i carry five clouds oh i get chill you know Mm, i get um thinking about it but he says like for um i carry four clouds in my pocket when i think of my mom and i just Hmm. it's just you know and i didn't i i remember the the air went out of me, you yeah, know, for a yeah. moment because it was just, I mean, he, I joke, I joked with my college students, you know, these, these third graders put, can give you a run for the money in metaphor mm-hmm. making in terms mm-hmm. of this eight-year-old child knew how to process sadness through metaphor. Right. And I didn't really have to teach them anything. I just kind of guided them, just, just kind of pointing them in the direction. And they took off with that and, and ran with it. We see a lack of. Of grownups who know how to deal with sadness or anger in productive, healthy ways, right? I mean, all you need to do is look at the news and see these are, you know, adult examples of people who don't know how to deal with their emotions in in healthy, non-destructive ways. And I just think that kids kids can just lead the way on that so much. And he said he was able to read his little poem without breaking down, and it was you could see in him there was like. There was a quiet sadness, but you could see also um, a confidence growing from reading his poem aloud that he was, and and his teachers had told me that was the first time he had ever addressed the loss of his mother in any of his writing or really even in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean when I say the power of poetry, the power of noticing is so helpful for us as humans to just process things that we don't have words for, Mm you know? Um,
0: anyway, no, it's a, that's a beautiful story. Thank you, thank you for sharing. Well, I'd love it if you could read us a, a, a section of this book. Um, oh, sure. This is this is a, a portion called called Vampire Squid. I, I love that. I love that name. Um, uh, yeah, take it away. Would love to listen.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much. And so, just as a just as a kind of a little setting up the book is that um, World of Wonder is a collection of. Thirty. I'm, anyway, it started with 200 and I boiled it down to 30 of my favorite plants and animals and I guess natural occurrences like monsoon rainfall. And I, I would say there's like maybe 70% writing about um, the natural world and about 30% memoir. Um, so this one... In particular, this chapter is on the vampire squid, which is my favorite cephalopod. And if you don't have a favorite cephalopod, um, you need to fix your life and (laughs) and figure that out. Um, And um, this one, so I'll start out, just I'll read the the very first part of it and um, we'll take it from there. Great. This is the vampire squid. Way down deep in the perpetual electric night of the water column a place where sunlight doesn't register time or silver filament. The vampire squid glides in search of a meal of marine snow. These lifeless bits of sea dander are actually the decomposing particles of animals who died hundreds of feet above the midnight zone. The vampire squid reaches for this snow with two long ribbons of skin, which are separate from its eight tentacles. If it is truly hungry, it trains its large eye on a glow, the lure of something larger, a gulper eel, perhaps, or an anglerfish waddling through the inky water. The squid's eye is about the size of a shooter marble, but this is nevertheless the largest eye-to-body ratio of any animal on the planet. Now, if the squid feels threatened or wants to disappear... Perhaps no other creature in the ocean knows how to convey that with a more dazzling yet effective show. When the vampire squid pulse swims away, each of its arm tips glow and wave in different directions, confusing for any predator. To make an even more speedy getaway, the squid uses jet propulsion by flapping its fins down towards its mantle and simultaneously blasting a stream of water from its siphon all of its arms in one direction. In the next stroke, the squid raises all of its arms over its head in what is called a pineapple posture. The underside of these arms is lined with tiny tooth-like structures called siri, giving an appearance of fangs ready to bite down on anything that wants to chase it down for a snack. As if that wasn't enough to shoo away a predator The vampire squid discharges a luminescent cloud of mucus instead of ink. The concealed swirl and curlicue of light temporarily baffles the predator, who ends up not knowing where or what to chomp, while the vampire squid whooshes away meters ahead. It's as if you were chasing someone and they stopped, turned, and tossed a bucket full of large gooey green sequins at your face. I wished I was a vampire squid the most when I was the new girl in high school. And I think I'll just stop there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, thank you for reading that. That was great. <laughs> tell me tell me a little bit about that and, and your approach into it and, and kind of what, what it what it means to you.
2: Yeah, you know, I had one year you know, I mean when I was crafting this book, you know, I remember telling my husband, there's really no trauma here. I didn't deal with addiction in any part of my family, you know, nobody died. And so I'm not sure, I think we were in that mode of like only kind of some, some kind of sad trauma would work in, in memoir, you know, or something like that, or in, or in a nonfiction, which is of course preposterous, but... I think it was from a, an early editor who had passed on this book had said mm, it's a little too happy. <laughs> you know, it was, it
0: was, <laughs> too happy, right? Uh,
2: so mortified, you know, like oh gosh, I'm not going to make stuff up to to have it less happy, you know, that kind of thing. And and why not? Why should I be apologizing for a mostly happy childhood? And yet, I knew there was one year I had never planned on writing about, and that was my um, what I call my cephalopod year the year I wanted to disappear and the year that I felt so lonesome and felt so alone, I had never planned on writing about it. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things. I was absolutely intent on writing about the vampire squid. And I was going to talk about kind of its camouflage and the way it's just so dazzling and badass, and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And as, as with many of my poems, um, the writing took me, to that year, that my 11th grade year when I was, I switched schools and going from a school where there was just over 100 people to over 650 people, Mm. you know, something like that, and where I was a giant nobody, or a little nobody, actually, you know, know, and that year was characterized by me, and it goes on to say like how I would, I went from being class president, you know, to someone who ate their lunches in a bathroom stall, because I was so embarrassed to be eating by myself, you Mm. know, and, and having nobody talk to me having people say like this seat is taken, you know, that kind of thing. And it's not trauma by any means. But at the same time, it was the most devastating, lonesome part of my childhood. A place also it didn't also help where I felt like anything about my culture was denigrated or poo-pooed. And Hmm. I'd witnessed my parents who are the most some of the most incredibly intelligent and i mean they're just my role models for so much having having uh, a a checkout lady talk down to my mom and say like speak up i cannot understand your english Uh, you know this is my mother who's the first doctor in her village in the philippines graduated top of her class you know and to see her just to handle it with grace and me being embarrassed and angry and not having those words, just wanting to just be away from white people, basically um, you know, and I didn't have the language i was I really wasn't gonna go there, and I thought if I did not include that, my sons would not know what what their grandmother went through, what I went through, and that it's okay it, it it's okay to feel alone sometimes and you will come out of it, you know? Uh, and um, I've had people from all over the world talk about this essay and in, in, in how they saw themselves in this essay. People who you would never think um, had a cephalopod year where they wanted to disappear, you know, uh, for whatever reason. Um, they were economically disadvantaged and people made fun of their, their clothes or they were a kid of a very brutal divorce and they wanted to disappear or, you know, whatever. I mean, so I, I'm just so glad and grateful to the vampire squid um, for giving me a chance to talk about, you know, this isn't an Asian American thing. This is a human thing to feel alone and like you're not understood. And I didn't know how to tackle that without the vocabulary of the vampire squid, actually.
0: Amy Nozuku Matato, thank you so much for sharing your writing and, and parts of your life with us today here on KCRW. We really appreciate it.
2: I'm just so glad to chat with you. And thank you so, so much.
0: Amy Nizuka matatil is the author of World of Wonders, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. She's also a professor at the University of Mississippi at Oxford. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.